Hey everyone, and welcome to episode number two of the Daily Doug. I am your host, Daily Doug, and this week we have a great episode. We will dive into uh, Pebble Beach this week, is where the PGA will be. The Pebble Beach Pro Am. It's always fun. It's exciting. We get to see a bunch of celebrities out there playing with pros. Uh, probably Bill Murray. They'll show. Tons of clips of him acting like a fool out there. You'll see Aaron Rodgers out there, Larry Fitzgerald, uh, just to name a few. Josh Allen is also there. And Steve Young will be there as well as far as football guys. And we will go over all of our bets that we had from last week. We came out just on the winning side. Thank you, Jason Day, for finishing in that top 10. And we will go over what the heck happened to my cash lineup in football. I went one for one in cash and PGA last week, and we'll wrap things up this week with our six bets for this week. I do have a special guest on in the PGA segment. Um, he will go over Pebble Beach. He is actually played there. A buddy of mine has actually played there and shot pretty well. He will give us some insight on what to expect when watching and just kind of uh, things that you aren't able to see on TV, some quirks and stuff about the course that you just aren't able to see. So it's going to be an interesting episode, fast paced. We'll try to keep it moving the best we can and buckle up, get ready. It's going to be another great episode of The Daily Doug. All right, let's get right to it. We are traveling eight hours north of Torrey Pines to Pebble Beach for the Pebble Beach Pro-Am. This course is awesome. It's iconic. It's one of the best courses on tour, visually, and shot making is key. This tournament is played over a three-course rotation. There will be Pebble Beach, Spyglass Hill, Monterey Peninsula, and then on Sunday, they will play at Pebble Beach again if you happen to make that 54-hole cut. Um, a little bit about each course here. Monterey Peninsula is the easiest of the three. It has the slowest greens. It's protected from the wind, so the wind isn't as much as a factor. Spyglass Hill, they are playing at 7,041. It's the longest of the three courses. Par 72, and they have large Poana greens that are slower. We talked about Poana greens last week. And all these courses have four on the greens this week. Pebble Beach is a short course. It's 6,972 yards. It's a par 72, and it's heavily bunkered. It has small, small Poana greens. In fact, the smallest on tour. The smallest they'll play all year long. And it also has the shortest average driving distance on tour. You'll see a ton of shots coming in from 125 yards and in. If the wind is blowing, um, it's going to play totally different. And a lot of things like an amateur to a pro, um, 125 yards, some people, it might be a nine iron, eight iron, and these pros are hitting sandwiches. So it's all about how these guys can control spin, flight balls into these greens and attack these pins. Um, knowing where to miss is also a big thing on this course. Um, with the second greens, these greens are really small. So that second shot, if you miss by a little bit, it could end up being a lot. If you're short-sighted, you could be in big trouble this week. And that's just, you know, not missing in the right spots. So the rough around the greens is really thick at this course. So you have 
guys that do miss the greens, it's not easy up and downs. All right. That ball could be buried. It's going to be a lot hard to get a lot of club on the ball and it could getting up and down could be a challenge. You got to get creative. You got to use your um, mental game here and you have to have soft hands around these greens to get it close to the pin. And I am joined by a special guest, a buddy of mine who played here. We'll be talking to him here in a second. Um, he will give you a little bit of the shot making stuff that he had to go through when he played there. He's a good golfer and he played the course um, roughly where the pros are. So we'll talk to him here in just a second and he'll go over the, some of the nuances and things that you might not see on TV and give you that uh, foot on the ground aspect of Pebble Beach, that beautiful course, talk about the scenery. It's just a great conversation and it's coming to you right now. All right, I am now joined by one of my friends who I grew up playing golf with and spent a lot of time with on the golf course. He's one of my good buddies. And since this week's PGA tournament, Pebble Beach Pro-Am, is at Pebble Beach, um, I know that this guy here that I'm about to introduce went and played Pebble Beach himself. So he can give us some tips on what to look for, any kind of quirks that there are on the course, the signature holes, and just basically explain his experience that he had at Pebble Beach. I'm joined now by Phil. Phil, how are you, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Thanks for having me on. It's always good to talk uh, talk golf with you. Yeah, for sure. And I just want to pick your brain on your trip to Pebble Beach here. I guess who you all went with, the distance you played it at, and just anything that you can kind of give us a on-the-ground experience of your trip out there. Yeah, so I went with my mom and dad in October of 2020. Um, I played the blue tees at Pebble, which um, aren't too different from what they play um, during the tournament. There's actually only a difference of more than like 20 yards on three out of the 18 holes. And so there isn't too much of a difference between the blue and, and the U.S. Open tees, which they don't typically let you play during normal rounds. Awesome. Yeah, right now they're playing Pebble at like 6,900, almost 7,000 yards. Um, so that just gives us a good, uh, I guess, aspect of where you're at. I guess tell us about your, your golf game a little bit. I guess your strengths, weakness, weaknesses. Um, I know you play some college golf and your current state of your game right now. Like you mentioned, we grew up um, together playing golf together. You're a few years older than me, but uh, – Definitely had some battles out on the course. Um, but, yeah, we grew up uh, at River Island, um, which is in a lot of ways exactly opposite from Pebble Beach in terms of conditioning and scenery and, and that type of stuff. But uh, they're still two of my favorite places because, um, you know, River Island is just where I fell in love with the game and where I spent so many hours growing up. Um, about my game, don't hit it the farthest, never have, um, used to hit it straighter than I do now with a better short game. Um, now I've kind of picked up some more distance, um, but still kind of, uh, lost some of the touch around the green now that I don't play as much as I used to. Nice. 
I mean, and distance isn't key this week at Pebble. And I was wondering, does Definitely that? Definitely not. Yeah, and you see a lot of people hitting from divots this week because everybody seems to be hitting it in the same spots. The approaches, 125 yards and in seems to be really key this week um, on all the research I've done and just watching it and viewing it in the past. But I guess would that be a pretty accurate statement? Yeah, I think you can definitely get away um, with hitting it shorter than, say, Torrey Pines last week. Um, I know when we get into our picks, like what we're kind of looking for is very different than last week. Um, You know, 7,000 yards isn't really anything much for these guys, and it's even playable for your better amateur players. So not only is it about approach, um, it's about how well you hit it around the greens and, and kind of where to miss because the greens are so famously small here that uh, if, you're, if you're off on your approaches, you better be on, on your chipping and putting. All right. Yeah. I mean, the greens are the small, are small and it's the smallest of I'm, the courses that they play on tour. It's, it's, you're right. It's, it's historically small. So um, I guess what are some of the holes, I guess, if you go through the, you go through the course here, some of the signature holes, are they all what they're cracked up to be hole seven, eight and 18 are the signatures, I guess. What were your experiences with those holes? Yeah. So I, the way I think about Pebble Beach is almost as if there's two separate courses, and that's the non-ocean holes, which are one through three, and then 11 through 16, and then the ocean holes, which are four through 10, and then 17 and 18. And obviously the signature holes, um, like you said, seven, eight, 17, and 18. And I would almost put 17 and 18 on a tier of notoriety above just being signature. Like they're two of the most iconic, um, not just at Pebble, but but in the world. Um, so going off that, I was starting with seven. Um, it's obviously the short hundred downhill yard uh, par three. And the day that I had played it was about mid 60s in terms of temperature and pretty benign so it's just a flip wedge um into the middle of the green legged it up tap and par um so i thought it was a little bit overrated kind of as a golf hole and um i can get into that a little bit later when you ask about nuances um or or quirks about pebble beach but um it's definitely the prettiest and most scenic hole out on the course, but purely from a golf perspective, I thought it was a little bit overrated, but if you get some wind into your face, I can definitely see how that would change. Right. And on Pebble, wind is the thing. I mean, if it's calm, it plays significantly easier than it is if there is a little bit of a breeze and Pebble is the breeziest of the three courses that they play this week. Um, and I guess, was it, it, you said it was pretty benign. It wasn't, I mean, ideal conditions, obviously. Uh, I guess, how nasty can it get if the wind starts blowing? If you think about 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, they're 
all above the beach and you can't miss right on any of those or you're going to be um you're going to be either in the ocean or on the beach um so like i said it was pretty benign but if you get a wind of 20 25 miles an hour into your face on seven you know that little flip wedge that i hit could turn into a six iron where if you miss it you know even by a couple millimeters it might just keep flying and and go right into the ocean so it's definitely not as punishing if you're playing it more benign like i did but that being said if you get lazy on a swing when all that troubles to the right you can still easily lose it yeah i mean that's with anything. I mean, once that wind starts blowing, I hate playing golf in the wind. But, I mean, <laughs> I, I enjoy the challenge. I definitely do. Um, there, I play some of my best rounds in the wind. I, I know I have. And I think it's just a, you know, focus more. But, man, that can take a, a taxing, you know, fatigue on the brain, just figuring out clubs all, all day long. I mean, that can be tough. But as we go along this week, we're going to see on TV, we're going to see whales and we're going to see all this other stuff in the ocean. We're going to see kayakers and all this other stuff, trees, you know, all the signature stuff that they produce on TV. And is there any like inside stuff with being there in person that you don't get that experience on TV that you had because you were there and actually saw? Do you know any like quirks or anything like that um, that's just better in person? Yeah, I mean, you've kind of alluded to it, but I think something that doesn't really jump out as much as just how small the property is because you're sandwiched on one side by the ocean obviously and then on the other side it's multi-million dollar piece of property after multi-million dollar piece of property and they're all trying to be as close to the course and ocean as possible yeah that's where so, maverick mcneely used to grow up you know grew up there so yeah they're there yeah must be nice to be him um but yeah it it i mean for example like the the driving range isn't even on property you have to take a shuttle up um it it kind of feels like uh some of the holes are just jammed in there so that they'd get to 18 total holes um and i i wonder what that does to it from an in-person spectator point of view because there just isn't like that much room to walk around can you see like multiple holes from one spot probably your best bet there would be to the like left of six because then you can see eight um and the approach into eight you could see the tee shots on nine and then you could kind of see like putting on 13 and then tee shots on 14. But that's really the only area of the property that isn't like fully used. Okay. And then I know there's like tons of bunkers out there. I believe 118, if I read correctly. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of bunkers out there. Were you in any of them? What, what are those things like? Is it just pretty standard or is it a different type of sand or anything like that? Um, it's obviously top-notch bunkering, um, very good conditioning. I was in the bunker on 17, left my first one in the bunker, and then hit it to gimme range. So um, there are definitely places that you can't miss. I would say the front bunker on 17 
like where I was, is one place that you could miss, but you don't want to miss in the rough or sand long there. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's, and as you said, it's fine bunker. There isn't like pebbles or anything else in there. It's just pretty much the basic sand you get anywhere else. Yeah, although on 10, um, like I mentioned before, you don't want to miss it right. On 10, I left my second shot out to the right and it actually went on the actual beach and so i went down um climbed down the cliffs one of the guys down there was asking if i was actually gonna hit hit my shot and i said that i hadn't come all this way to to drop so (laughs) (laughs) i hit it up on the green and then left my par put about six inches short right in the middle so that was a pretty memorable bogey that's definitely our, our strategy. I mean, we think alike there. I mean, we don't go places to lay up. And we don't go places, you know, to just kind of take drops. So we like right. to hit it from where we are, <laughs> for sure. And then the last thing I really want to touch on here before we get into a few guys we like this week is Poana Greens. We read a lot about them, how they're bumpy uh, compared to, like, the bent grass and stuff like that. Uh, they do roll a little bit slower. But I guess what we're – what was your experience with them? I mean, you, in the spring time, they see the poana, the grass starts getting that, those seed tops on them, and you have to, like, clip them off in the spring. I guess the time you played, that wouldn't be the case. But I guess what was your experiment or your experience with them? So, like the bunkering, um, I mean, the conditioning is top-notch, and obviously they can get – any superintendent or grounds crew or piece of equipment, fertilizers that that they need. So the greens roll, roll true. Um, One of the problems that I I had, um, I'll give you an example, was I went long on four, which is the short uphill par four. Hit my second shot long, um, had a straight, it's the green is severely um sloped from back to front and i popped out this beautiful kind of not really flop but i mean i only hit it like six feet and it probably rolled out 25 oh really and yeah and so i was left with a four footer um kind of slightly uphill went a little bit left to right but i didn't strike it solidly and it just fell straight, uh, straight right. So you really have to hit it solidly, or or you're going to be playing plinko out there. I see. All right, man, that's great insight for sure. Because, I mean, you hear it all the time on on tour. You hear, oh, this guy putts terrible on Poana. This guy putts great on Poana. Like I said, Maverick McNeely, one of the best putters on it. Also, Nick Taylor is also a great putter on it. Um, so. You have a few guys that can, you know, make a living and, and strokes gained on point of greens is a, is a stat that I keep track of that I like, um, especially in these types of tournaments. So give me a few guys this week that you'd place a wager on. Uh, this is, I mean, this is the Daily Doug, so we go over all these guys <laughs> and draft kings and go over things like that and betting odds. Last week, I did hit on Jason Day top 10 bet. That was, I thought, pretty much automatic. I missed that McNeely, though. But I guess where you're looking this week, what type of guy are you looking for? And, I mean, who are your guys? Yeah, so the first, what I'm going to be looking at is uh, strokes gained approach. 
And so I'll give you one guy that's kind of chalk and one guy that uh, isn't as much. And so for the chalk pick, I'll go with defending champion Tom Hoagie. Right. That guy is legit from 125 and in, man. He's just on fire. And obviously he's, I mean, he won last year, so he's he's had success. And I think Pebble is kind of like Augusta, where if you have it there, you have it. And if you don't, you don't. And yep. he definitely does. Um, coming back to where he won last year, he's probably in a good headspace. And so far in this season, he's uh, first overall in strokes gained approach to the green. So I like him for those two reasons. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's... It's going to be in my daily lineup, um, more of, I think, a tournament play. Uh, but in my cash games, I'm all about uh, Matthew Fitzpatrick this week. Uh, a little bit more expensive than Tom, but I do like Fitzpatrick this week. Uh, I guess where's that other guy? What, what other guy are you looking at? So the other guy that I have, um, he finished up the fall season pretty well, but hasn't played in 2023 yet. And so that's Joel Damon. Yep. Um, after missing the cut at the Fortinet, he went T13, T37, T16, T3, T9, and T5. And so while he doesn't have recent form uh, since November, I think he's he was playing good golf then, and he, he just seems to get better year after year. And so I'd look to have to see him have a good year, um, but also a good week as well. And he's currently 28th in strokes gained approach. Yeah, I mean, and he's just on DraftKings. He's a flat 9K. So, I mean, that's a good bargain for him. And he just had a kid. So, you, know, you got to like that aspect of things. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's why he took his time off. And he's like 1.7 strokes gained right now. I mean, that guy is he's on, he's just on a tear. I do like that. That's a great pick. Uh, for yeah, sure. so... He's great in everything strokes gained except for putting. But, I mean, you can – any of these guys can take it deep on putting for one week at a time. So, Right. He's got if, that boom possibility in the in the putting strokes. Because one right. tournament he's, like, plus three, and then the next he's, like, minus, you know, a couple. So there is that boom or bust there with his putting. Yeah, guess, who do you uh, like this week? Well, I like Matthew Fitzpatrick uh, this week. He seems pretty chalky, but I do like him. I'm, I also like Seamus Power. Uh, he's a good play this week. And I'll be going over these guys uh, in more detail with, I guess, in regards to fantasy or DraftKings this week. And then uh, guys that um, like 6K range or, you know, way down on the list that you just hope and probably get good odds on a $5 bet, but. Ben Silverman, he won the Corn Ferry event last week, and I'll look for him to ride that potential this week as well. And hopefully, he can come out with a top ten or something and pay off a bet. Ride him, ride him up into the show. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. Well, uh, Phil, thanks for your time. This is great stuff. Gives people a little aspect of you know what it's like to be there. Um, I'm jealous, man, that you play, especially with your mom, and dad. Um, that's time that you know you don't just don't take for granted. So. Uh, thanks for coming on, man, and we'll do this again. Have a good day, and hopefully uh, hopefully we can hit on some bets this week. All right. Sounds good to me. Thanks, buddy. All right. Take care, buddy. 
All right. Now that was awesome stuff by Phil. Gave us a great perspective of what it's like at Pebble Beach. Uh, a little bit of both the course, some of the shots he had. And we'll be able to relate now. We'll see some guys behind the green on hole four. We'll see some guys in the bunker on hole 17 in front. And we'll see what they can do and see how that correlates with how Phil played uh, his great round at Pebble Beach. So I do like the fact that we can relate to that. We'll have more conversations like that as this podcast grows. And hopefully we can continue to get that insight on uh, courses and what it's like to be out there and put ourselves in the professional shoes, so to say. But now on to DFS and Matthew Fitzpatrick is the guy I'm going with this week. He is the best player in the field, in my opinion. He's got the complete package. He's great in strokes gained with approach. He's great driving the ball. He's got a great short game. I like Matthew Fitzpatrick this week. He is expensive, but he is $500 less than the leading price guy, Jordan Spieth. This puts Matt Fitzpatrick at the third highest price guy, which I don't know how. Uh, how a guy who I think is the best guy in the field is third, but like DraftKings doesn't give a shit what I think, but that's where he's at. I'm playing him. If I'm getting that guy at that price, I'm playing him. He had a seventh place finish at the Century Tournament of Champions, and he's playing well as of late. Matthew Fitzpatrick is my guy this week. I'm going to take him over guys like Jordan Spieth. The price is one thing on that, but Jordan Spieth is usually good at Pebble Beach. Uh, he's intriguing at Pebble Beach. He was runner-up last year, a T3, a T9, and then he won it in 2017, but he hasn't been playing very well. He missed the cut at the Sony while gaining strokes on the greens while putting. So he gained strokes, missed the cut. You're looking at his ball striking just being horrendous as of late, and that's not going to go well here. If he can't hit these tiny greens, like Phil stated, they're tiny. If he can't hit them, He's going to have trouble around this place this week. And then the guy I like as well is Tom Hogue. The guy has been playing really well, and he's the best on tour. Strokes gains on approach. 125 yards and in is key. Whether it's in a divot or not, he'll be able to manage. And I believe he's good enough around the greens. If he does happen to miss one, he's good enough around the greens to get up and down and save his pars. Uh, his last three events, he's been T32, T41 and T3. Like I said, he won this event last year and then he finished 12th year before. So he has good history, good course history. And that pretty much rounds out the guys in the top 10 that I'd even think about. I'm fading Jordan Spieth. I'm going with Matthew Fitzpatrick and Tom Hogue. Uh, If you're choosing one of those guys, I'm going with Matthew Fitzpatrick this week. On to the 9K guys and Maverick McNeely at 9,600. He's currently at 1.49 strokes gained. He was runner-up here in 2021, and he's got six straight T30s or less. He's super reliant on his putter. Well, these greens, as we stated, are Poana greens, and he's really good at putting on Poana greens. So his ball striking, although it hasn't been great, he should be able to make up for it on the greens. A little bit of added you know, knowledge here. He did live on the place uh, growing up, grew, grew up there live there so he's very familiar with it but i don't know if he's going to be a guy that i'm going to play in tournaments he's very chalky if i'm going to play him it will be in cash just because or like one-offs 
but that's pretty much where I'm at with him. On to the next guy is Joel Damon. He's a straight 9K, 1.7 strokes gained per round. Uh, he just had a kid, so he's been off. But when he has played, he hasn't played in a while. Like Phil stated, he gave you some more stats on that. But he hasn't played in a while, but he's going to be fine. He's 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 a lock this week for, for me. I have him in my cash lineup. And then the other guy is Seamus Power. He's gained 1.73 strokes gained in his last 62 rounds on courses under 7,100 yards. Now, that's a stat, right? I mean, if you're gaining almost a stroke, you know, 1.75 strokes over the, you know, on these short courses, that means you're playing well. It means you're striking the ball well. Your approaches are good. And he was a 36-hole leader here last year. He finished T9. He struggled on the weekend, but he knows he can play here. He has that confidence he can play here. And if that putter comes along, he will finish well here. Uh, he finished tie 20th in Abu Dhabi and second at the Hero and 25th at the Century. So he's playing well. Uh, he's in my cash lineup this week. Thomas Dietrich, I had him in my lineup. I wasn't able to keep him in my lineup, but he's another guy to keep an eye on in that 9K range that you can't go wrong, I guess, putting him in there. I'm not going to fault you for putting him in there. And we'll go over this stuff a little bit more when we go into my build. But in the 8K range, I'm staying away from Taylor Pendrith. Normally, he's a guy that hits the ball long, but he's just a bomb and gouge, and his driving has been accurately accurate lately. So I'm avoiding him this week at all costs. His wedges are terrible, and he's bad on POA. So all that combination, do not play Taylor Pendrith this week. The guy I'm playing in the 8K range would be Ben Griffin. He's playing very well and quietly. He's seen his biggest... Increase in price, he's gone up tremendously in price. He's like one of those guys that stock market guys, you know, buy him low at the beginning of the season for maybe like $3. And if I were to put a tag on him, he'd be right around $7, $8 right now. His stock is going up. I bought him low, and I'm going to keep riding this dude. He's made nine straight cuts. He's gained strokes against the field and ball striking in his last five events. His putter is where he can get a little iffy. Uh, it's suspect, but I'll take that chance with Ben Griffin. Taylor Moore, he's good putter on Poana Greens. His game suits this place. Uh, Nick Taylor, he won the event three years ago, top 40 in four straight years, 14th last year. Then he had the missed cut at the American this year, but I'm giving him another chance. I don't see why not. He plays well. And he's familiar with this play. So if you're looking to give a guy another chance in the 8K range, now I think that's a little pricey for a guy like that. But if you give him another chance, I don't think he's going to disappoint. He's definitely going to make the cut. In the 7K range, this is a, this is an interesting one. Lano Griffin. The guy is back from his injury. He played very well last week in three of his four rounds. And he was a T9 three years ago and a T16 last year. At 7K, and seeing how he played last week for three of those rounds, I have major confidence in him. This course suits his game. He's one of those guys that inserting at 7K this week is, is a good idea. You have Joseph Bramlett. 
he's striking the ball awesome his strokes gain for ball striking is right there he's got a top 15 two top 15s in his last five starts and he hasn't missed a cut since october of last year and it all depends on his putting so we have a lot of guys that if they can putt they're going to be right there Differ from courses like Torrey Pines, where if you can't hit it long, you're screwed. And then if you have, like, if you're a bad long iron player, you're screwed. So this is different. People aren't going to be hitting driver every hole. This is all about getting to that 125 yards and in, putting it on the green, and then making the putt. And some of these guys can get hot with the putter. It's all a matter of how hot can they get. That boomer bust, weighing that out on the greens. Robbie Shelton, two top 10s in his last four events. Uh, tie 67 last week. He's another good play for the 7K range. Going on to the 6K range and wrapping up this DFS portion before we get into this build, I like Ben Silverman. He won on the Corn Ferry Tour last week. So if you beat guys on that tour, you are going to be – you're playing good golf, and you're going to be able to compete in events such as this. It's not very long. You'll be able to play some precision golf. I like Ben Silverman. He's playing well. And he won last week. The other guy would be Kevin Tway. He had a great week last week. Finished 18th. Uh, Great round three. He shot 69. So I do like him as well in that 6K range. You're going to need a couple of these guys if you're going to go heavy in that 9, 10K range. Matthew Fitzpatrick, McNeely's. Uh, you could go with Sh- uh, Seamus Power, Joel Damon. You have all those guys that are available. If you're going to play them, you will need to go with a couple of these other guys in that lower 7 to 6K range. So I'm going to go over my build here, and I have a team that I'm going to submit into cash right now. And I'm going to start out with that team with Matthew Fitzpatrick at $10,100. I'm going to compliment him with Joel Damon and Seamus Power. Both of those guys are in the $9,000 range. I'm going to have to dig deep into my bag of tricks here. And I'm going with two guys in the upper 6K range with Ben Silverman and Kevin Tway. And my one lone $7,000 range guy would be Bramlett. This is my cash team. Now, This one, I believe, can also be used in some tournaments here and there. Pick your tournaments, though. So when you are on DraftKings, don't just go to all these featured events and think that you're going to place. Scroll down, find an event that has maybe 70, 80 guys in. Don't play these ones with thousands or multiple entries even into these. Play the single entry ones that have maybe 60 to 100 some people in it. And just all you have to do is beat half in a 50-50. Take your money, put it in your pocket, and go home with it. Build that bank account. Uh, I like to say, line your pockets. And that's what we're going to try to do this week. So that's a wrap on this week's daily fantasy stuff at Pebble Beach. Enjoy watching. Hopefully you guys can correlate some of the stuff you heard today with what Phil was saying. And enjoy the weekend. All right, we are back, and there is no DFS slate this week for the NFL. So we are going to just talk about the NFL a little bit. Uh, 
and what the hell went on in the championship Sunday. We had a crazy game, the Eagles and 49ers. I haven't seen a game where two quarterbacks have gotten hurt. There is no emergency quarterback in the NFL anymore. They do not allow you to roster three quarter. Well, you can roster, but there really isn't room to have three quarterbacks on your active roster. So these guys went out there and they ran the ball. They had they were forced to play a quarterback with a torn UCL, which is extremely painful. He will be out six months. Uh, the NFL needs to fix that. There needs to be an emergency quarterback. Nobody likes watching games like that. And the outcome of that game was predictable once uh, the backup went out. It sucks for Purdy. I was hoping to see him get, you know, compete in that game. It's just, that's just tough luck. It sucks for the 49er fans. They have to feel just let down, but maybe they feel, I guess, better about that loss where they really didn't have a quarterback. They ran the ball even when they were down by 20 some points. So that game went as expected, I would say. Uh, maybe not that exact way, but that was one of my two unit bets, and that is cashed. So I will take that. That minus four and a actually two and a half points was a steal, I thought. I thought it should have been right around like four and a half, five. I'll take that. My two units. I love it. That bet was great. Hopefully you all bet along with me on that one and cashed as well. On to the second game where <laughs> what a shit show. There were penalties everywhere. It really had me guessing or second guessing. Is this rigged? Is the NFL rigged? All the money that is being bet on these games, is it rigged? I, at first, thought so. There's just no way you can miss after the way that game was called, that block in the back. I believe that Patrick Mahomes was tripped out of bounds. Their feet got tangled up. It really wasn't that a push. Was it a push? Yes. But was it as egregious as he flopped and made it, you know, a sound or a seam? You know, LeBron James did. But... I just didn't think that was warranted at that time and place for that call. Was it the right call? Yes. Should it have been called? Yes. But with game flow and the situation, I don't think so. I think those are ones where you just eat the whistle and deal with it. But that game didn't get as high scoring. The under hit uh, Bengals, they decided not to go over 24 and a half points. So I lost that bet. But, and I lost their Bengals plus one as well. That just happens. You're going to have some of those. It's just how it goes. Uh, the game was awesome. If you like entertainment, that game was it. Joe Burrow had the ball with two minutes left and you're thinking this guy's going to do it again. They failed to get a couple first downs and go down the field. They punted a big return by the rookie sky Moore. He got to the outside and then stupidity all hit. People were given extra downs in this game uh, before that whole two minute drill. It was just a mess and the NFL needs to fix it and they need to find ways to get these officials full time. There should be no way these officials are not full-time. They should be paid full-time. 
yes, they, do they work every week of the year? No, they don't. They don't work every week of the year. But should they be training and learning new ways to officiate games to be more efficient? Yes. And this should be a full year process, uh, everyday process of getting better at your craft so we can enjoy this game as fans. The players have a little more consistency on what they are being called and how the games are going to be called. A lot of times they'll emphasis crap in preseason and they'll blow the whistle and throw flags for everything, making games unbearable. We don't want flags. We're not out there to watch a bunch of penalties. These emphasis usually go away by like week four, five, and the game gets called back to how it always is because ratings and all this other stuff say, well, we got to maybe slow up and then they'll something else will happen where they'll be targeting something on some guy's knee. They'll try to emphasize that hit for a while. Officiating is just a joke and the NFL really needs to fix it. It's rooting their product and I'm kind of bent out of shape because I lost two bets because of it. But that's neither here nor there. That is my NFL talk for this week. It's really not very good, but it is what it is. And I'm going to move on to something a little bit better. A lot better, in my opinion. Are these Milwaukee Bucks winners of five straight? Chris Middleton is back four games in a row. Played 20 plus minutes tonight. 18 points. Giannis is following up his 50 game or 50 point game with 34 and 18. This tonight versus the Hornets revenging their loss, which was awful. To lose a team by 40 earlier in the year, actually just a couple weeks ago, to lose by a team by 40, that's bottom of the barrel team, is unheard of when you're the Milwaukee Bucks right now. But I guess that is Wisconsin sports in a nutshell. Always builds you up, always lets you down, except for the 2021 Bucks. They did uh, exceed expectations and win a title. But the I guess we can break the Bucks season down right now into two parts. We have the beginning of the season where they were extremely hot. They won a bunch of games in a row. And then they just cooled off, and everybody's like, are they figuring out Giannis? Has Giannis reached his peak? Middleton was hurt. Connington was hurt. Angles was hurt. And we're relying on guys. Uh, Matthews was hurt. We're relying on guys that just aren't used to playing together and or even playing at that level at all. Grayson Allen got cold from outside, and this team was struggling to put together wins. Then we get to January, and all of a sudden, people are starting to get healthy. Shots are starting to go in. The Bucks before January were 24th in the NBA in three-point percentage. Right now, they're at 16th in the NBA in three-point percentage. The month of January, they're shooting 40% from outside the arc in their last 12 games. So this is a team that is there that has been a top five three-point shooting team the previous two years. So are these guys bad shooters? Are we supposed to be, you know, when they were struggling, are these guys bad shooters? I don't think so. I think we have the same team and they're good shooters. They went through a rough patch. They're getting healthy now. They're coming back full strength. And I believe that they will be 
hopefully stay like this, maintain this, you will have off nights. Giannis isn't going to go for 50 every night, but I don't see why he can't. I guess that brings up another conversation. Has Giannis hit his peak? Is this the best Giannis we are going to see? Is he always going to be a 29% three-point shooter, 30% three-point shooter? Or will we see that rise to the 37% range? 35% range would be amazing even for him. I don't think so. I think he's going to be what he is from outside the arc, and he's going to take shots that when I watch some of them, I'm like, that's just a terrible shot. Or why would you take that shot at that time when you could just drive to the basket and get a bucket? That's the honest way. That's how he's always done it. He works on his game within the game. And if you want him to potentially make a three-point shot when it's needed in the playoffs, when it matters the most, he's going to have to have that experience that feel of what it's like to take it in a game instead of in practice. Well, he does that. He comes down, he'll just line up a shot. A lot of times from the top of the key, he'll go into that little stutter stutter step and he'll hit that shot, get his feet under him and let it go. A lot of times it's an air ball, but when he nets it, the crowd gets wild. It's like almost like a five-point shot. Like Usually the crowd's amped, they get a stop, they come back down and score a bucket for five, you know, a run. And that's all leads to that based on him just shooting a shot that he isn't very good at. But if it goes in, it has ramifications. Like it's a bit, it's just a big confidence boost for him and the team. Giannis in his interview after his 50 point game, he said the team wants him to be more aggressive. And he's really showing that as of late, he's really taken the ball to the rack. He's gotten there. He had a game where he didn't even shoot outside the paint and had 30. So this guy is taking it upon himself to insert himself into these games. And then they ask him, well, what do you need to work on? Well, I need to work on defense, he said. Well, I guess so. (laughs) I mean, if that's really what it is, the fact that you were shooting at one point this year 17% from outside of the lane, that seems to be a problem. So maybe he should be working on his mid-range. But when his mid-range is there, and he can hit that Dirk Nowitzki fade from the baseline like he's been working on, and you see him add that into his game. He also has that little Kobe in him uh, where he'll come down the lane, he'll do like a half spin and then a fadeaway. That that move, if he's if he's hitting those, and if that if that's it's game over. If he starts hitting that consistently, if he starts being a fifty percent, you know, I guess mid range shooter. Uh, we haven't seen the best, to be honest, if that happens. Even if he goes from his 70% free throw, 69%, which he's at now, if he goes up to 72, maybe even 77, you're looking at four more points per game. So do I think he's reached his full potential? No. And he's in year eight, seven or eight. I think that there's still a lot to tap in there. And will we really know the answer to this question? Tomorrow? No. Will we know it at the end of this year? No. This is going to take time to know the answer to this. When was Giannis's peak? It's going to be years down the line uh, because the game's evolving. And as he gets older and his legs start to go away from him a little bit where he's not as explosive, he's going to have to recreate his game kind of like LeBron James did. LeBron was a terrible three-point shooter when he first got into the league. And now 
he's, I mean, I don't think he's very good, but he revamped his game to be effective. Uh, he could have got to the basket at any time early in his career, and he dunked, monstrous dunks, electric player, one of the best to ever play, hands down. And he reinvented his game to you know, cope with his body and his changes, his physical attributes. So I believe Giannis will do the same thing. As far as other people on this team, I just want to highlight a couple people. Chris Middleton, as you'll you'll know, I'm I'm not a big fan of him. I'm going to come out and say it, but the guy he produces, I just think he disappears a lot in big games. He'll be there, and then all of a sudden he's just not. And that seems to happen more times than not. But the guy's a he's a clutch shooter, and he's a good shooter. He's a forty percent three point shooter himself. And having him back in that lineup right now is key. Even though he's only playing 15, 20 minutes, the team has rallied around him being back, and they're playing really well. So I, is he the best that he can be right now? Right now, no. I think he's already past his prime. He's on the downhill side of things. Along with Drew Holiday, Drew Holiday is a very solid player. But is he past his prime? I believe so. We know what we have with those two guys. It's a matter of... Giannis and the supporting crew, if they can hit threes, if Giannis stays inserted into the games and aggressive, this team, sky's the limit. I'm thinking NBA champs, the limit. If these guys get cold, a couple injuries happen and we start losing some of these three-point shooters, um, we're looking at a first-round exit. This team is going to live or die by the three. It's very evident. We take the most threes or the Bucks take the most threes in the NBA, and they have been doing that for a while. And we're going to ride and die. It's going to be an interesting year. We are in January, so all these high points, these high points in games, is because we're in January. NBA historically, these games get out of control. Bucks scored 150 points. They scored 140. They scored 124 tonight. So they're scoring at will. But the NBA across the board is scoring at will because defense in January just doesn't seem to be a thing. Luka, he went off for 53, I believe, after Giannis's game. So defense is just not where it needs to be. But as that picks up, can the Milwaukee Bucks still continue to make threes? And I believe if they do, they are going to be NBA champs. And if they don't, it's going to be a first-round exit. So that's my take on the Milwaukee Bucks this week. Uh, I'm going to move on a little bit here, and we're going to talk about the Green Bay Packers, uh, more or less just Aaron Rodgers. And my Aaron Rodgers take for this week is the guy is just having a good time. All right? Let the guy make the decision. Don't speculate on what he's going to do because he doesn't even know what he's going to do. Is the team having talks behind his back about possible trade? Perhaps. But who cares? It all relies on if he's coming back or not. And until he says he's coming back, or if he says he's retiring, I'm just going to keep an open mind on this situation. Uh, he's enjoying his time right now. He's at Pebble Beach. He's did his Pat McAfee show from a trailer, the tailor-made trailer, getting a new driver fitted for him. So read what you want into it. I just don't think we should be in a hurry to move on from him. This is one of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game. And to just move on from a guy like that reluctantly and be like, oh, Jordan loves time. Jordan loves time. I, I just think that's just too premature. 
I believe he has a lot of football left in him. Does he look slower out there? Yes. Does he make good decisions? I believe he always makes good decisions, but I, you know, I, I questioned a couple of them this last year. I questioned a couple of them, but his year wasn't bad. A lot of quarterbacks just starting out would love that year, but he's had such a high standard and Aaron Rodgers standard that we're so accustomed to that even a little down year, it seems like a big down year and an Aaron Rodgers year is remarkable and he didn't have his typical Aaron Rodgers year this year so everybody's ready to get off the bandwagon jump off trade him do whatever I just think hold your horses let this guy come to his decision keep him around if you can uh it will be Jordan Love's time we have a fifth year option on the guy we can always do things next year will he be happy no but do we have team control yes so I say just take a deep breath on this. Let this thing play out. Don't worry about it. The media is going to run with certain things on it. But let this play out, and hopefully he's a Packer next year. I hope his last ball isn't an interception. Go out the far way. I was at both those games, both disappointed. But at least I got to see potentially both their last two games as Packers and in Packer uniforms. So that's my wrap on the Packers this week. Um, that's my trip around Wisconsin sports. I can say that. And we will go on to a little bit of betting here in the next segment. So get ready and stay tuned. Be ready to win some money. I'll take the bet. Oh, yes! Yes! All right. Yeah. What's, the, what's the game? Your seven iron, Roy. One swing each. Whoever hits it the longest. It's a lot. I hit the seven iron like John Davis hits the three. <laughs> winner, winner, took it down. I'll take my beer, Kurt. Man, I absolutely love that show. That segment, that part of the show is one of my all-time favorites. And that just leads us to the betting portion of the Daily Doug. And let's just recap last week. We won two units on the Houston bet, minus nine. A two-unit bet with the Eagles at minus two and a half. And we also won one unit, Jason Day, top 10, at 2.6 to one odds. We were losers on the Jason Day win. We were losers on Maverick McNeely, top 10. Losers on Maverick McNeely win. Uh, We were losers on Bengals, plus two and a half. And losers on Bengals, over 24 and a half points. You add all that up, and you put the juice into it, and we are still up 0.85 units. So with betting, anytime you're on the positive side, you've got to take that and ride that momentum into the following week. This week, I have some great bets, some ones that I think we'll definitely cash on. No two-unit bets this week, nothing I guess that confident in, uh, but to go two units, I'm still very confident. If I'm betting, I'm confident. I'm confident in what I'm going to tell you. Uh, so here we go. We'll start out with Seamus Power. One unit, top 10 at 2.5 to 1 odds. Absolutely love that. I'm also going to take one unit in a matchup here. Seamus Power over Tom Hogue. Uh, plus 105 on that one. So he is a little bit of a dog. But I like Seamus Power this week. So I will take him. I also have one unit, Joel Damon, uh, to win at 40 to 1 odds. I also love that top 10, one unit, 
top 10, Joel Damon, four to one odds. Switching over to college basketball, I like Georgetown, one unit plus 13 and a half versus Creighton tomorrow or Wednesday, I should say. And I also like one, I have one unit on North Carolina, minus eight and a half over Pittsburgh. Definitely follow along with me. Let me know if you guys are tailing me, winning some money. I always like to say it, line those pockets. All right, welcome back to the Daily Doug. And this is another episode of Jumping the String with Jared. We are going to be talking about uh, or just expanding on our conversations from last week. We'll be talking about bow maintenance, what to do with your bow and during the winter months. And we'll be uh, diving deeper into hinge cutting. I got a lot of positive feedback on hinge cutting. Uh, people want to know more about it. And we'll give you a little bit more uh, what to do in detail and when to do it. So why I like to do a hunting segment in the middle of my daily Doug stuff my fantasy football and sports stuff is you wouldn't get a full representation of who I am without hunting and fishing. When I'm not doing sports, I'm usually hunting or fishing uh, besides spending time with family. I love to be out in the woods and this is just a full representation of who I am. And that's kind of how I want this podcast to go. Yes, it will be mainly sports, but this is also equally as important to me as as sports. So hunting and fishing are key to my life. That's why we have this. And I am glad to be joined uh, tonight by Jared jumping the string with Jared. Here he is. Jared, how are you doing tonight? Good. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. I'm doing awesome. Uh, one of my bets hit this week, Georgetown plus 13 and a half for Creighton tonight hit. Oh, so nice. I'm, I'm one for one. I don't think NC is going to hit. So I'm about to be one and one, but you know, there's always golf, and I believe I have some good bets this week with golf. And we'll NC, though, right? Is that Tar Heels? Yeah, NC Tar oh, Heels. They oh. lost outright. They were favored by eight and a half over Pitt tonight, and they lost oh. at home uh, 65 to 64. So, as a Duke fan, though, I'm happy. <laughs> they kind of yeah, suck, but they aren't even in the same leagues <laughs> right now. So, yeah, either way, um, Jared. Let's dive into this here. It's the winter months, and let's talk taking care of our equipment. Last week, we talked about our stands and what to do with our stands at this time of year. And now we're going to talk about our bow and our arrows, what to do with those. So I guess give us a little bit of a rundown on what to do with our bow this time of year. Yeah, for your like standard traditional compound bow, the biggest thing is to take some time and clean your bow up for optimal performance. For next year um you really want to check out your strings that's the biggest thing is each year your strings go through so much if you don't wax or oil them that's a huge no-no so a lot of people don't do that so you'll want to check that out for frayedness or like the fuzziness of the string um if you see strands coming off the string then you might want to contact your local pro shop for that because around the peep site or the cams roll over that starts to free after a while. So you'll want to check that out and uh, make sure that it's set to go for the following um, season. I guess what kind of oils and waxes do you kind of use for that? Because I mean, I'm not going to go take my wife's massage oil and start massaging. I guess, is there a certain kind or is it just some kind that you just pick up at your local shop? I mean, 
yeah, I mean, you could probably go to your local archery shop. They'll have any uh, bow wax or string wax. I use like Boeing, the brand Boeing uh, wax um, for mine personally. But um, but yeah, any type of bow or string wax, if you Google it, it will work. So all right, all right. So we went over our string. I guess when would you repair it? I guess like what is the maximum of any kind of fray or I, is there like a certain time like do you repair it every two years do you start doing that or i mean start losing speed it you know over the course of the years of shooting your bow is there any kind of stats like it, that that you know i mean there are, i'm sure there are um but i don't have those in front of me so <laughs> um but um all in all what happens is that say you have a few strands off your string there's so many layers to a bow string if you have x amount that are frayed there's potential that you'll have a misfire string will snap whatever the biggest thing too is like if you keep your bow in a in the bow case during um winter months or summer months whatever it may be you're risking it for rotting so if it rots you risk the potential of it snapping when you're hunting or when you're like not expecting it. So um, I'd say the biggest thing is just to pay attention to the frayness, the fuzziness, you know, everything and just um, keep up with it. All right. That's good stuff. Now our cams, do those, do you check those for nicks? What do you do with those? If those are damaged, how do you know if they're damaged? I guess, what do you look over for those? Yeah, when like there are servings on the strings that are, um, that go around the cams. But the biggest thing too, you have to look out for burrs. Like, cause sometimes you can like, you're lowering your bow and it hits the tree, whatever it may be. If you're walking in, if you're a public land hunter, then you're going through way more things than what I do <laughs> on a logging trail. Um, so if you have burrs on your thing, on your cams, then that's time to probably go to the local archery shop or if you have a bow press. If you have a bow press and you actually know what you're doing, you can take out your bow, you can file those burrs down on the cam and to make sure that that string is not rubbing against it. But um, I would say if majority of the people would say go to the, our, the archery shop, the pro shop, that they can handle it. Yeah, for sure. I'm bringing mine to Leader Swamp Archery. Those guys are yeah. the best. Free shout out. Free shout out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, anything else, Jared, that we would have to look at, like, I guess? Uh, I, I think rest, the biggest thing now. Anything like I think that? that? Yeah, so, like, I'm actually like in the process of selling my bow, and I did not realize all year that my rest was malfunctioning uh, as far as making more noise than what I would prefer. So, um it's just think, little things like that to shoot a little bit during the off season to see if you notice something that wasn't there in august that you hear in january um as far as arrows um give a gentle flex to the even though they're carbon give a gentle flex to them to see if there's any you know crack or whatever just to um make sure that because fiber does break so um make sure you're doing that and then if you're into it, you can sharpen your broadheads, do that stuff. But that's all stuff you probably can do in August. Yeah, I'm probably just buying a new pair. 
I'll definitely just be buying a new yeah, shoe. I'm not, not messing with my fingers or anything like that. Uh, knowing myself and my clumsiness at times, that's not going to be good for me. It's not going to end well. So storage. How do you hang? Do you hang it up? Do you put it in your case? Yeah. How do you store your bow in the winter? I mean, fortunately enough that I can, I have a basement and everything that I can, that's doesn't have a lot of humidity. So I can hang my bowl in the basement and be careful with it. I do not like to keep it outside in a non-insulated garage or because you'll forget about it until August and then the humidity kicks in and that can expand a lot of things. So um, I prefer like much like fish bait, <laughs> keeping a cool, dark, heated <laughs> area or your bedroom. I don't care where you hang it, but just not out in your truck. That's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, that can that can be some damaging stuff. Well, so everybody, you should be able to be able to take care of your bow. Like I said, you get a head start on that. If you do that in the winter, you'll be ready to go come you know, fall or summer whenever you really start shooting again. But we did recommend last week, we recommended shooting all winter. Uh, now it's the time to practice. And this is a good time then to find all those quirks and everything that you might have with your bow. So that's all good stuff. And like I said, I was getting a lot of feedback with hinge cutting and what to do. I'm not an expert in it. I know a little bit about it. I hear about it. A couple of my friends do it. Uh, I just don't know enough about it, but would you like to elaborate on that? Like, let's start out with what time of the year is the best time to hinge cut? Is it strictly winter or is there other times of the year that you can do this? Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of, kind, kind of depends on like how much property property you're dealing with. Um, you're dealing with a lot of property or you have a big mass of land where you have several bed, bedding areas on your property but usually late summer or this time of year winter where you can get into certain pro like certain areas of your land without busting deer is key because what you can do is phenomenal like you can do phenomenal work you have a sanctuary you can or you have an edging so you can feather in all of that stuff but there's so many like i don't know like different circumstances where you, like it all comes into play but um Either way, it's always a good practice it, as long as you have a plan. Right. So what types of trees are the best? How high do you cut them? Do you cut them at the ground? Do you cut them, you know, reaches high up? How, how do you cut How do you cut these things? I mean, you, you'll want, number one, I would say, like I've told you, I'm like, you need to get a consultant. You need a biologist or a forester, number one. Like that, unless you're an expertise in this, but you have to have a plan. Um, it'd be like an NFL coach going into the game without a deer, without a plan. So like the 49ers that. without a quarterback, they didn't have yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like Brock Purdy, <laughs> it'd be like pretty bad, but uh, um, you got to do that. And then what you want to do is you take the six inches or less roughly baseball bat type, you know, and then you cut them three quarters away, let them tip over, be safe about it. Um, cause if you're cutting big trees down, then you're just doing a pure forest job. So, um, there's so many benefits to doing it, but you still have to have the, the major plan in order. Right. And I guess the areas that you do it, we always talk about bedding areas, uh, creating your own bedding area. And 
what hinge cutting does around a bedding area. If you want a bedding area in a certain spot, you hinge cut that spot uh, to build like a barrier, allow sunlight to get in to that area and the undergrowth will start coming up. And that's the, that's the point of the bedding area. I understand that. And we went over that a little bit last week, but is there anything else? Is there any other reason to hinge cut besides bedding areas? Well, I get there like you and I, like where we hunt, we don't have a lot of timber. So it's, it's harder for us to like sacrifice even the bad trees, but you're not going to go down into an oak flat and just start cutting oak trees. That's just not feasible, but you want to take the undesirable trees, you know, whatever it may be in your area. But if you cut them three quarters away, the tip them over, you're good. Um, you can create funnels, other methods, like what I did personally in my friend, we did electric fence, like 200 yards of it to funnel them to a corner of our food plot. So, I mean, that's what we do, but we didn't have the, we didn't have the right trees to particularly like, um, do the hinge cutting. So, um, you get the funnels and then the biggest thing though, is that when you cut it three quarters away, you snap it over is that the trees continue to grow. So, the deer will continuously eat throughout the winter, spring, summer for probably three, four years. So that, that, that to me is the biggest benefit. Well, that's, that's definitely interesting. I mean, so I guess in my opinion, where I hunt, I have a pretty good spot, but there's a runway about 45 yards ahead of me. And if I'm trying to, let's say my woods was adequate for this, if I had a bunch of trees up there, and I need I needed a closer shot. So it, would it be in my interest if my woods was set up for it to hinge cut to funnel them closer to me, uh, so I can get a closer shot? Absolutely, man. That's I mean that's that's probably the number one reason why like with small woods or like small properties, I should say, that's major benefit. If you you only have like one one or two shots at those mature bucks that. Um, you get a chance at so that's the best way to probably do increase your odds okay is there anything else with this that i guess you recommend i mean i heard or i what as i do a little bit of reading and research myself um hinge cutting is good for transitions from your woods to a field edge uh, it gives them a little bit of uh i guess feathering out. sanctuary in a way yeah, yeah. It, it's sanctuary yeah, yeah can you like, elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so what it does, it kind of blocks it from, like, deer want to, like, be downwind of a, of you, of anything, where they feel like there's pressure, they're going to be downwind. So that what it helps, it helps break up their view, helps break up wind, any, anything can be. So, um, like I said, not a true expert, but in general, it's pretty simple. If you create these sanctuaries for these deer, they're going to feel safe, and they're going to stay there. Um even if like I don't kill a deer, like beyond my parents' house right now, I didn't kill a deer, but I want to create a sanctuary for them. I will do that so I can find the sheds like that. Like that's what, right. like that's, that's what it is. Like it's, it's tough when you have a small property, one of these, like um, if you're in Illinois or Iowa where you can kill this big deer on, you know, 20 acres or whatever it may be, it's a little different. For Wisconsin, you got to be smart about it. And um, right now, that's 
you have to be smart about it and just hinge cut in different areas, but you have to have a plan. Like that's the biggest thing. Honestly, right. you have, to have like the, the plan is the biggest thing. Right. So grab a 30 pack and a biologist and get your ass out in the woods. And yeah, start, exactly you know, right, man. And plan yeah, this thing out. So, that's my easiest way of saying it. Yeah. Right. There's so much you can do. with just a 30 pack. It, it just leads yeah. to a good time about 95% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, man, that's pretty much it for this week on jumping the string with Jared. Um, Jared, Super Bowl next week. We have the Pro Bowl this no, week. We have Super Bowl next week. week. And I guess next week, get together a parlay card with some prop bets. We can always go over that at the yeah. end of the segment. Um, Who do you got? A little bit of Ed with a little bit of cash flow is always a good thing to our episode. But thanks a lot for your time. This is a great chat. Hopefully, everybody learned a lot about what to do this winter with their bow. Uh, a little bit, we expanded more on hinge cutting. So thanks a lot for joining us again. And have a good week, man. All right. We'll talk to you later, man. See ya. And that'll do it for this week's episode of The Daily Doug. Hope you guys follow along. Hope you guys win some money. Remember to follow me at, at R-I-G-C underscore pin seeker. And please remember to bet responsibly. Do not bet what you don't have or can't afford to lose. All right. Hopefully you guys win some money. Line those pockets. Take care now.